Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the second episode of Women in Y podcast. My name is Kayla, and I am your host. Today, I have the pleasure of having Esther Mobley as my guest. Esther is the wine critic for San Francisco Chronicle. She also covers beer, spirits, and San Francisco restaurants. She's an extremely impressive person, not just because she's super smart and articulate, but she's also just a really good person, uh, which makes her such a great role model. I think this episode will be really inspiring and expansive for anyone that's looking to get into the wine industry or figure out what to do with their lives, which we have to admit is probably all of us at one point or another. And she just has a great story of going after what she wanted. I hope you really enjoy this episode and I suggest that you follow Esther's writing on San Francisco Chronicles, um, why why not column, or I also to subscribe to her um, newsletter, which is Drinking with Esther. You can find that in the show notes, but also if you Google Drinking with Esther SF Chronicle. Uh, you can follow her on Instagram at Esther Mob or on Twitter as at Esther underscore Mobley. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Esther Mobley. So welcome to Women in Wine. Welcome to my guest, Esther Mobley. Uh, this is Kayla. Hi, everyone. This is Esther. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. And I would love to just start off with how you got to California. So I I came to California, and then I left California, and then I came back again. Um, the first time I came to California was right after college. Um, I, I was an English major in college and didn't know what I was going to do with my life and thought, before I resigned myself to a boring desk job, which I was sure I was destined for, I would have an adventure and, um, and, and like travel, but I needed to work. I needed to make money. So I got a job, um, as a harvest intern for the fall after my college graduation. I had never been to California. Were you already interested in wine at that point? Not really. I, the, I, I was interested in things like joining the Peace Corps, but I didn't want to commit to two years. Or um, I would have probably just traveled aimlessly, but I didn't have the funds for that. That's where my head was. It wasn't uh, pursuing ambitiously a love of wine. It was wanting to have some kind of adventure and go to a new place. And the idea of working with my hands in this totally naive way really appealed to me. I was like, I want to do manual labor. You know, I've been sitting in the groves of academe and I want to actually like get out there and do something. Um, so, of course, that always sounds a lot better when you're thinking about it than when you're actually performing manual labor for 12 hours a day as a harvest intern is. Um, but I so I came at it just from that, from the idea that coming to California sounded fun and the idea of working on a vineyard sounded great. I mean, I drank crappy wine like any college student does. My parents didn't drink wine. Um, and so so I, I, I did some poking around the internet. I, I went to my college's alumni database and just typed in wine. Uh, it was a just a shot in the dark and uh, about five names came up. So these are um, alumni of my college who 
And let's call it, uh, your college is in the East Coast. Yeah, all, Massachusetts. Massachusetts, all girls college. Yeah, yeah, Smith College it's in so, Northampton, Massachusetts. So kind of a, a shot in the dark a little bit, I mean, to get yeah, I mean, typical, I guess, as of a California agriculture school or something. No, the I, I had no clue. If you'd asked me what enology was, I wouldn't have known. I had no clue there was such a thing as studying wine in college academically. So, um, so, so I typed in wine and, you know, the alumni database shows these five people whose profiles in some way incorporate wine. And one of them said, it said she was a winemaker in Napa, California. And I just thought, oh, that sounds really cool. So I cold called her and said, hi, I'm a senior at Smith. I see you went here. I see you're a winemaker. What does that mean? I didn't know that was a job. There's such a thing, you know, I saw this thing, there's a harvest internship, and that was Helen Keplinger. I had no idea that I was, like, calling this totally (laughs) big deal. You know, she was on the cover of Wine Spectator, but um, she would be in the future. Anyway, she she kind of guided me through it and said, yeah, come out, Uh, you can get a job, Um, apply on the UC Davis job board. I said, I don't have anything to do with UC Davis. She goes, it doesn't matter. That's just where the Harvest Internship jobs are posted. Um, Use me as a reference. Mention, she she had me draft a cover letter and she was like, mention that you're on the crew team and you get up early and you're used to working hard really early in the morning. So that was what I led with. It's like, I'm on the Smith crew team. You may have heard of it. Uh, and that was true, though. You that was were. true. Okay. I was I was <laughs> on the crew sure. team. I was on That's the crew awesome. team. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I just remember sh- she said, you need to think about whether you want to work with Cab in Napa or Pinot in Sonoma. And I literally thought she meant Pinot Grigio. Yeah. I thought she was talking about, do you want to make white wine or do you want to make red wine? And I remember I was being like, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, what's the difference? But I mean, that's how little I knew. Yeah. My best friend from college also then got a harvest internship, and we drove out to California together oh, from Massachusetts. Fine. I had never been here. So um, that was my first experience was that six-month period I lived in Napa after college. Um, and then I left, and um, I didn't come back until 2015 when I came when I moved to San Francisco for my current job at the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh wow, that's fantastic! I mean, I came back to visit. In yeah, between. you would have to have yeah. right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of in between, I'm sure. Um, well, did that then? Did you immediately apply for another Harvest internship, or was it there's some time between those? Yeah, I I immediately so. Once I was in Napa, um, I worked that season at Round Pond in uh, winery in Rutherford. Um, and suddenly I was surrounded by all these people who were like aspiring winemakers, a tribe of people I had had no idea existed. And um, everyone around me was applying for harvest internships in the Southern Hemisphere for the winter. And so I didn't know what I was going to do afterward. I mean, I had no plan after this. I was just going to go back to my parents' house in Boston. Um, And so I thought, hey, if I can continue to milk this a little bit and um, get a job in Australia or New Zealand or South America or South Africa, that sounds pretty good. Well, you must have really liked it still, though, too. Or were you already applying without even having the experience? No, I did really love it. I I mean, that, that... Harvest season in Napa, I think of as one of the happiest times of my life. Oh, fun. It was great. It was really, 
to me, it was so dynamic. I had never had a job that used so many different parts of my brain and my body, I'll say. You know, one day you're, it's an estate winery and it has about a 400 acre vineyard right there. So I was in the vineyard constantly sampling grapes. I mean, we were like leaf thinning. I was, I was like, this is pretty cool. Um, I was in the lab. I hadn't taken a single science course in college. Oh yeah, because you're an English major, of course. Yeah. And we had no gen ed requirements. So I was in the, suddenly I was like, oh, I'm doing lab work. This is cool. I learned how to drive a forklift. I learned like a little bit about how to taste wine. You know, we were blending and I got to sit in on that. Um, I was like learning how to stack barrels, throwing them up four high. And so to me, it was this incredible mixture of the physical, the kind of intellectual, artistic, the mechanical um, and I, I had been so kind of focused on this, um, you know, being an English major, I was just reading and writing I, in college and suddenly it was like this whole world of other ways to be and other ways to work was opened to me and I wanted to continue with it. And I mean, your background in writing though, is that something you've done all your life as a writing? Like, did that always come natural to you? I always loved writing. Yeah. My mother will tell you that when I was a kid, when my brothers would be outside running around playing outside, I would be inside, like, practicing my handwriting. Oh, wow. <laughs> I loved reading. I loved writing um, always. And um, if you had asked me in college what I really wanted to do if I didn't have to choose something practical where I could actually earn money, I would have told you I wanted to be a novelist. I mean, I, my goal was always to find a way to write. And I just assumed it wasn't possible to really have a real job where someone pays you to write. It didn't seem, I, you know, I, I worked at a newspaper during college um, and it was so depressing. They were just making layoffs and this was the recession. So um, it, it just seemed to me like it was a kind of doomed industry. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't think journalism was really going to be possible. And I just always assumed I would... I would have to write kind of on the side as, as my hobby, but I always wanted to. Oh, that's really cool. Cause then you were able to combine two real big passions that became part of your life and find an outlet for that. So that's really amazing. Yeah. I still feel like it's the biggest con ever pulled off. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good one. You're doing a really yeah. good job. <laughs> that's pretty fun. Um, but going back to your time and kind of all these harvests in Argentina, I mean, what was kind of your biggest lesson out of that? Did you, was there anything that kind of really stood out on what you learned? One, by the time I left Argentina, I felt pretty sure I didn't want to be a winemaker for the rest of my life. I now question that certainty. You know, I think there were a lot of other compounding factors. Um, i I didn't have the best experience in Argentina. It wasn't f fun per se. It was, I learned a lot and I learned a lot about how to kind of be on my own. It was in this really remote place and there weren't amenities. You know, I didn't, it wasn't like we were like going and partying after work like I had been in Napa. I was really confined to this you know, this house and the winery and going back and forth. And a lot of people, um, the way I thought about it at the time was I, I knew all these other people who were doing 
that who were working these Southern Hemisphere harvests, and sometimes they were really lonely. And um, but they knew that they wanted to do it as a career move. And I just thought, if I, this isn't my career, I, you know, if you if you take out the the all the kind of environmental factors that had made me love my job in Napa, maybe when it came down to it, I didn't love the work of producing wine quite enough. I now think that was me being kind of stupid. I mean, you know, I if if I had stuck with wine production, I wouldn't have just been on assembly line pump over duties right. my entire the whole career. Time. You want to be cleaning barrels every day, yeah. right? So um, anyway, but that, at the time, that just seemed obvious to me, and I think I wasn't quite ready to to detach myself from the East Coast, mm-hmm. and right. my whole family's there, my friends are there, and. I think I felt like I was meant to be there. And also, so that was the, by that point I'd been out of college a year and I think I just craved the kind of stability I saw my friends who had jobs and apartments in Boston and New York and Washington DC having. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have an apartment and live there and like stay put and (laughs) see the same friends over and over again. And I, I I really was craving that. Mm-hmm. Stability is, yeah. And also, were you ever craving um, maybe a career, like goals kind of a little bit? Too? Yes. So to to my people on in the Northeast, they were like, Esther, why are you doing this nomadic farm labor thing? I mean, my parents thought it was cute. and They I, were super supportive. Yeah, they were supportive. I mean, <laughs> for the um, time being. <laughs> for the time being. I mean, I, you know, they weren't supporting me financially. I was kind of just barely scraping by with my harvest intern wages. But I think they were both like, okay, but when are you going to get a real job? I mean, I can remember this conversation with my mother when I came back from Argentina, and she just had all these career ideas for me that were so off the wall she was convinced I needed to become a physician's assistant I was like that is so random mom I've never expressed interest in medicine I you know I don't know science and I think you know just to me it was like plastics in the graduate it doesn't sound as exciting when you started like being in the vineyard and drinking wine yeah it's not quite but I think I I felt I wanted to just you know I I yeah, I mean, I felt that pressure not just externally but internally too to to try to actually get serious about something and do something yeah. that was going to be lasting. And um, if I didn't want to become a winemaker, I think working harvest wasn't – I think I knew that wasn't going to get me there. But it was premature. I wish I had worked more harvests. Yeah. It's a great experience. I mean, I think everyone should go through it if you're going to be in the wine industry so you can relate. I mean, everyone has those, like, fun stories. I mean, do you have anything that, like, I had Petite Syrah covered from (laughs) head to toe because I opened up the uh, wrong side of the, like, a tube one time and it was just everywhere. (laughs) Well, I couldn't, I could never use a power washer without completely drenching myself. I mean, (laughs) I don't, I still can't work out the mechanics of it because, it wouldn't be facing me, but I can just remember one time having to clean out the press at Round Pond, which is one of those um, bladder presses. It's not a basket press, so it's one of those big cylindrical things. 
And I got in and I got out and I was, maybe this is, maybe this is everyone, but I was just dripping. (laughs) Like it was like I had been submerged and they were like, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Yeah. You should be a little drier than that. Yeah. But what was it like um, working under Helen? Um, she was she kind of a mentor to you? In so I never worked for her. Oh, okay. Um, she simply oh, right. guided me, and um, and ha- has always continues to be a friend to me, but certainly a mentor. And um, she's always, you know, when I was figuring out whether or not to take this job, hers was the advice I listened to the most. I mean. I just think she's made such an amazing career for herself and is really serious and takes what she does really seriously and is in it for the long game. Um, and I I trust every decision she's made. I mean, I, I trust any advice she gives me. Oh, that's really great to have that kind of person yeah. that you can call up and ask. Yeah. Have you been like put into a mentorship role yet? Oh, um, yes. So, well, not really. No, I'm trying to think. There have been a couple of people who have, like, reached out to me when they're interested in maybe getting into wine. But I don't, I don't know that, I think calling myself a mentor would probably be overstating. <laughs> but what kind of advice do you give them when someone's saying, like, you know, I, maybe someone just like you that was not really studying wine before, it wasn't super knowledgeable about it, but really wants to. So I say work a harvest, and to me it's the perfect thing to do because it's like a short time commitment. I mean, you could do any job for five months, right? Mm-hmm, right. Sometimes shorter the way harvests are going these days, at least in California. Um, so, I, and I just think I, you can't just show up and expect the world to give you everything you want. I mean you should always ask for more, but I think putting in a few years of doing kind of grunt work and not knowing where it was going to lead ultimately gave me the leverage to then ask for a lot more and try for really ambitious things a few years later. But, um, I would never have gotten my, I would not, I, you know, I wouldn't have my job if I hadn't worked harvest. Right. That is like really good advice. It's so hard to follow that advice when you're in that position where you're like, oh, I should be doing more. I need to be doing more. And to like recognize, no, this is just the time for that. And that's that's a really good perspective to have. Well, I think it's hard to know if, if there's not a kind of pre-charted course. You know, a lot of my college classmates went immediately into these leadership training programs at investment banks or consulting firms where they have a really set path for you. Um, A lot of companies have that. You kind of know you start out as assistant X, you'll be promoted to associate X after a certain number of years. And um, somehow in my weird wanderings, not knowing what I was going to do, I think I carved out a niche for myself really, really effectively. I mean... I somehow managed to say I was someone who had a unique intersection of a writing background and wine experience. And that's certainly how I got an internship at Wine Enthusiast, which was my my first entree into 
wine writing, wine publishing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure they had any number of young, uh, young applicants who wanted to get into publishing, who wanted to be an editorial assistant somewhere. Um, and I think just because I'd worked to Harvest by that point, I'd, by then I'd also worked in wine shops and restaurants with wine programs. So I, I remained kind of focused on that. But um, I, you know, I think I was just the kind of random young person who I imagine, you know, there weren't that many young people wanting to get into publishing who would also work wine harvest, right? Right. Yeah. It's a very unique set of skills. But yeah, it worked out in a weird way. Were you always writing during that time too? Did you ever stop writing? Or did you have like a blog or something else? I did have a blog briefly. Oh. <laughs> it is not visible anymore, oh, thank goodness. I Well, I, I had it in my head, you know, once I figured out that I wanted to try to combine writing and wine, I wanted to try to be a wine writer, and that this was going to be the way maybe I could actually write for a living. Um I still didn't know if that was really going to be true, but I hoped it would be true. Someone told me, who told me? Someone told me you have to have a blog. I mean, you have to be kind of publishing what you're saying. And um, Sarah Green, my my college best friend who also came out with me and worked that first harvest, and she's now a winemaker. She's a professional winemaker. She's stuck with it. She kept this incredible blog um, she's a better writer than I am and she, and has a better palate than I do, but, um, uh, it's still up. I believe she hasn't contributed to it lately, but in that first year, she was like, I was like, I can't compete with this. Um, but she kept this great blog about winemaking and what it was like working harvests and making wine. Um, but I, I viewed the blog I kept then as a portfolio. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care if anyone read it. I just wanted to be able to show it to someone if perchance I was applying for a job with them. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious to go back to what you were just saying, like, oh, I'm nothing compared to this, like that, like, oh my gosh, like I am just comparing yourself. Do you feel that today at all? Like there's just so many wine writers out there. And does that ever like that feeling of like, oh gosh, I'm not as good as this? Well, um, sure, all the time. I mean, I, I, there's so many writers out there I admire, and I read them, and I think, oh, wow, I, you know, I couldn't have said it that way. Or you read something, and you're like, I wish I wrote that. Though I have to say, um, more and more, I really feel great about what I'm producing, what I'm creating, and also feel that I'm really lucky to work for the Chronicle, which I think gives me much more creative freedom and autonomy than other publications would. I think the kind of the Chronicle's larger vision for what their wine coverage should be beyond me is like the best one, honestly. I mean, I, I think, first of all, our, our physical location being the largest daily newspaper in Northern California um, with the most resources of any daily publication in Northern California um, just gives me an incredible palette to work with. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have this incredible 
team of photographers who are just, you know, we don't need to use handout art in our photos and they're amazing. We have this great digital team that can make our stories look really good, that can make videos to go with my story. I have incredible editors who always make my work better. Um, and other other reporters at the Chronicle who are so great, who I consult with all the time. I'm proud for my stories to be next to theirs. Oh, that's so cool. Um, so I, more and more, I feel like I'm able to carve out the the kind of project I want to do, and I think the more I feel like what I'm doing at the Chronicle is different from other wine writing, mm-hmm. the less the the burden of comparing myself to others becomes because I'm not trying to do what wine spectator does. I'm not trying to do what the ratings outlets, the wine advocates and Venice's and Jeb Dunnick um, are trying to do. I'm not trying to do what Jancis Robinson is trying to do. So um, I feel like I'm, I compare my, my own work and the minutia and the, the way I write constantly but the vision for what I want to do, I, I don't compare it. That's really great. I mean, it sounds like you're not only supported, but you're also inspired. Definitely. Which is a huge part of it. Yeah, and I think just being on the ground here um, all the time gives me access to people, to sources that not every wine writer has. Um, have, you know, so, yeah. That's I, so cool. It's, it's all inspiring. Can you tell me a little bit about getting this dream job? Like, how, what was that process like, and where were you when you were applying for this job? Well, I actually was in California when I applied for this job. I was visiting, um, and when I worked for Wine, so I, I worked for Wine Spectator in New York for three years, and Wine Spectator's main office is in New York, but they have a small office here in Napa, and um, I came out a handful of times and worked from the Napa office and wrote stories reported stories from here um also i i just still had friends here in california a bunch of my friends from new york were moving to san francisco continuing to happen um and had a hunch that i wanted to maintain a connection to california wine um in the wine spectators new york office they don't taste west coast wines they taste um essentially european wines and then also like south american and south african wines Um, and I always felt like I, in that office, one of the assets I had was that I had this knowledge of California wine because I had worked here and knew it. Um, and I, I had this sense, I mean, I, I honestly thought I was going to stay at Wine Spectator until I retired. I just thought, where else do you go? There's (laughs) no other, if you want, if you want health insurance. Close to the ceiling. Yeah. (laughs) Where else do you, I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't want to become a freelance writer and I just thought I I, there was a clear path for me if I had stayed there it would have taken a very very long time but I just thought okay I stay here I pay my dues I put in my time and someday I get a tasting beat and become one of the tasters here so I kind of I I kind of thought oh if I can maintain a kind of connection to California that will be an asset in the long term for me within Wine Spectator so I was out here, um, and while I was here, uh, John Bonnet, who was the Chronicle's wine editor, it was announced that he was leaving. And, I mean, a job like that opens up how often? Once every 10 years? Once every Easily. 20 years? Yeah, 20. 
And um, I thought, whoa, that's cool. Someone's going to get a great job as a wine writer. And um, I didn't tell that many people I was applying for it. I frankly didn't. It took a couple of people just saying, why not? What the hell? Um, to convince me to do it because, I, I mean, I was embarrassed to have applied. I just thought I was so massively underqualified. I had worked for Wine Spectator at that point for like two and a half years. I wasn't a taster. I was an assistant editor. Um, and I just thought they're going to be looking for someone who's been at this for 10 years, who's a name, who um, is well-known. Um, you know, the fact that I live in New York probably isn't going to be very appealing to them either. And, um, won't they just look for someone local? And I could have named you 10 people I kind of thought were obvious heirs to that position. So, um, and I'm sure many of them would have done a great job. So I just thought, um, I shouldn't apply for this. I can't apply for this. And then I applied for it and it took a while, but I got the job somehow and I am just so grateful that I was kind of audacious enough to apply in the first place. Yeah, it's huge. Just have your own self-confidence and courage to do something like that. It was kind of, it, uh, yeah, yeah. Take some other people, though, in re- like you said. In retrospect, it, it was courage. Um, you know, we can call it courage now. At the time, I think I was just kind of blindly saying... That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. So just curious, what was the bottle that you opened up when you found out you got the job? <laughs> oh, I can do tell you, you. Do you know? No, awesome. It was, um, I can tell you where I was. I I um, was at, I went to meet my friend Carrie, who works for Frederick Wildman, the importer distributor, at Le District, which is this, it's like the French style Italy in uh, Lower Manhattan. And Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the Chronicle, called me and told me I'd gotten the job. And we we got a bottle of um, 1995 Tatanjay. Oh, fine. <laughs> That's a perfect celebratory it wine. So good. It was so good. Ryan Mills Knapp was the wine director there, I remember. And he was like, I, I know what wine you need oh, right now. Oh, that's awesome. And he opened that for us. Wow. That must have been an amazing feeling. Well, so coming out to California, you have this huge role on your shoulders that's um, kind of been, it was held by John Bonet for many years, right? He was here about 10 years. 10 years. So that's a huge, like, shoes to step into and a huge place to be in. And you are kind of younger at that point. What what was that like? Did What did that feel like? Well, I was acutely aware of how unknown I was and young I felt and um before there's this there's a long period of time between when John Bonnet left and I started about six months and there was even still a a kind of long lag time between when I started the job when I accepted the job when I started and um one website the connoisseur's guide to California wine run by Charlie Olkin, who's an incredible wine critic and has been at this for uh, decades and knows California wine so deeply. He's, I mean, it's funny to me that he cared this much, but um, he somehow found out that I was going to be the Chronicle's new wine critic. And he, he posted, oh, I learned who the Chronicle's new wine critic is. And 
it's this young woman. He spelled my name wrong. He, he cited my age. He was like, she's 24 years old, which was not correct. I don't know where he got that. Made up. (laughs) And he, in this way that to me just felt so kind of demeaning, was like, who is this? How do we know who she is? The Chronicle used to be respectable. I mean, I don't want to um, paraphrase. I haven't read it in a while. Right. Not and, a very good start. Well, a few people commented saying they had met me, they knew me, they thought I was serious. Several other people commented speculating on my age. None of them were correct. I mean, were, were they like – look trying I don't know where they what why they thought they knew yeah all they would want to focus on um and actually um anyway my my boss Kitty Morgan called Charlie Olkin and was like why are you posting this mm-hmm. um and I felt like oh this is cool yeah uh, I have these new female bosses they're gonna support me I haven't even I hadn't even started yet I was still on the east coast and um they were calling him on my behalf and and it did it on the one hand i just felt again like wow i i really pulled off something crazy here like i've gotten this job that people think i'm not qualified for but i got the job mm-hmm. so that's awesome on the other hand i was um i was really disheartened by the how gendered that felt to me i mean i it was hard for me to imagine how that post would have gone down if it had been a man my age um, in his 20s getting this job and would they have really been sitting there speculating over exactly what age he was um, so so I I kind of had to steal myself for that going in yeah and I mean there is a really good example right now I mean you're not just making that up I don't think anyone has commented on William Kelly's age for the wine advocate right right so yeah I mean I, th- I can totally see how that that could play out um, and has that affected you in other places as well? Being a young woman, has it given you any kind of disadvantages, advantages? Has it been hard? So I'm sure a lot of young women who work in the wine industry get this, but constantly people are like, are you even old enough to drink? And I just want to be like, no, I'm 19. Sometimes I say that. <laughs> I say, no, I'm 19 years old. Does that make you happy? Sure. Um uh, and then there's um, the the ongoing condition of mansplaining that I encounter, and I encounter um, frequently. Well, I don't know how frequently, really, but um, many times I've encountered older male uh, wine drinkers who are kind of lecturing me about wine, and I just want to say, I might actually know more than you do about this, um, but I. I also think, I'd like to think that, um, I don't know what, if it has to do with my age, with my gender, with just my own personality. I think I'm a little, I hope I'm more approachable. And I think that's a great asset to me professionally. I think it helps me get good interviews. I think it helps me, helps people be willing to talk to me. I mean, I've kind of talked my way into getting people who refuse to speak on the record into speaking on the record. And I, I, you know, again, I don't know what that's about, but I'd like to think that it's part, you know, that I'm at least in some way taking advantage of seeming 
like young and approachable mm-hmm. and non-threatening. That's a really good point. And I, I would just back you up on that. You are extremely approachable and down to earth and very easy to talk to. So I think that's, that's does help you out a lot. Um, and kind of speaking about building that, like people that you're starting to meet and or have met, um, you've really built up quite a big network of people you know. And I've even just observed how well you are at keeping it really professional in every kind of situation and not having like these friends take advantage of you. And I could only imagine that you feel that way a little bit where people kind of have you over and they're like, oh, well, I want you to try this or kind of give you a certain service and it maybe doesn't feel as genuine. Does that happen to you? Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot to say about that. Um, One is, yes, uh, you kind of never, I never know if someone actually likes me. (laughs) If they seem like they like me and they want to hang out with me, there's a good chance they don't actually like me. Um, The Chronicle has a pretty rigorous ethical policy that gives me an out for a lot of these things. I can't accept free meals. I can't stay overnight at a winery. Um, And... You know, a lot of wineries have pretty nice-looking guest cottages, but um, I can always just say no. I, you know, it's against editorial policy, and that allows me to, without being really rude, create a healthy boundary. I think um, I'm always cautious of developing friendships with people in the industry. Certainly people like Helen and Sarah, who were my friends before I was a writer, I can't write about them. <laughs> and I have to be kind of careful how I I go about that. But the wine industry is one in which it's easy to blur the lines between professional and personal. I mean, we're drinking wine together often. Meals are involved a lot more than in um, the work of other reporters at the Chronicle, for instance. Um, and... I, I don't, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I love that I work for a publication that has a strong ethics policy and that's willing to back it up. Like, I don't have to accept a free meal. I can pay for the meal and expense the meal and treat my story subject to the meal. Um, not every publication allows you to do that. Um, they'll pay for my travel if I need to travel somewhere. Um, but I... I never want to be rude to anyone or mean to anyone. And I think having friendships with other people who know a lot about wine and share my passion for it is like one of the great joys of what I do. And I truly believe, too, there's a way to be friendly and um, cultivate people as people in your network um, without having it go over the line into a friendship that would compromise my ability to be impartial. And I think as long as I am kind of clear about that and uphold that, people respect that and respect the boundaries I have to mm-hmm. have. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just also, I've been in this industry for a while, and just the egos that are in this industry are really intense. And a lot of different people and different kind of vibes. And um, I think a lot of people do put up guards that come off as also just like a little bit tough. And I just don't think you have that. You don't have an ego. You have, don't have a guard. Like you're just, you're very approachable. So I just really want to say like, I really admire that. Well, that's really, that's awesome. really kind of you. And it's, it's an anomaly <laughs> in this industry sometimes. Um, so I'm just going to kind of be mindful of time. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, 
after this, but there's one thing I really would love to hear is how you kind of, what your favorite wine book is um, to learn about wine, because you absorbed a lot really quickly. Well, and and reading wine books truly is how I learned about wine. I, I didn't take um, any WSET or, or Court of Master Sommelier courses. I wish I had. I would be better off for it. But um, I does, the books I think that really taught me a lot of things were um, Adventures on the Wine Route by mm-hmm. Kermit Lynch. To me, that's essential. It's a beautifully written book. I mean, it's anyone would enjoy it. Um, it's an incredible history of of so many of these really important wines that we now have available to us and know in the U.S. that no one did. And um, I think of that book as having really ignited more passion in me. I mean, the thing you you sense when you read that book is how much he loved wine, mm-hmm. his work, his travels, France. And um, I think you need that love in order to be in this. But, um, you know, Aylan McCoy's biography of Robert Parker was really also an influential book. I It gave me a total sense of the the world I was entering into as a winemaker, excuse me, as a wine writer and, um, and the kind of legacy of that and the importance of, of what Parker had done. Um, and I, so I love those books. Um, they taught me a lot. I mean, I read reference books. I read so much Jancis. (laughs) I still consult Jancis. I consult wine grapes, the book constantly. Um, every week um and and it's a tome it was a gift my mother gave me for Christmas the year it came out and I'm glad she did um it's a really useful gift but but I you know I think it's important not just to read reference books but to read some of these narratives that give you a sense of why people are in this in the first place yeah and one thing I just love about the wine industry is that you never stop learning like there's just so much more out you'll there. never learn it all yeah <laughs> So it's just, it's a fun, fun exploration for sure. That's one thing I really love. Um, What are you kind of most excited about right now? Is there anything kind of up your sleeve or that you're doing? A lot of things. I'm, I'm working on several stories right now that I feel really excited about. And um, when I step back from just what I'm doing on a daily basis, maybe everyone has always felt this way throughout history. I don't know. But I feel like we're living through a time of such incredible change, and I'm getting to be one of the chroniclers of that. And um, I just imagine when, when the dust settles from whatever we're living through right now, how, I mean, Napa Valley, this year is the 50th anniversary of the Ag Preserve, and the tensions around how Napa land should be conserved, not conserved, developed, but, you know, the use of the land is just reaching this incredible little moment of tension. And I just think we're on the cusp of, of things happening and things changing. And when you look at the rest of the world and the way we regard new wine regions, um, within California, what we're seeing coming out of pockets of the state that were never known for wine before the way there are young new people really 
doing things completely differently from how their forebears did it. Um, the, the way people are willing in California to really take a stand on making a different kind of wine and sticking to that is like crazy to me. I mean, um, it's a young industry. Yeah, it's, it's always evolving. Yeah. So I, to me, it's like just a joy to, to watch it happen and to get to talk to people about what is happening. Oh, it is really fun. So my last question for you would be, what advice would you like to give to the audience? Is there anything that you would like to leave them with? Be serious. I think we, we don't know how things are going to fall. Uh, you know, for me, it's like, how, what's the future of media? Um, 10 years from now, what's going to be an important marker of you as a journalist? Will it be your Twitter following? Um, will it be prizes? Will it be uh, having a, you know, a certain number of page views? Um, we don't know. Uh, what we do know is what constitutes good work, serious work. I don't think that's going to change. Um, I think this is applicable to people in all facets of the wine industry and in other jobs too. But I think of the core of what I do as being the most important part of what I do. And maybe this is a justification for not being as digitally savvy as I should be as a millennial. I don't have that many Instagram followers, but I just think if I can put my head down and write well and do things ethically and thoughtfully and with a sense of curiosity and integrity, that that has to be what's going to carry me forward and what's going to matter when I look back on my career. So maybe that means not jumping on bandwagons. Maybe it means trying to juggle more and more things on top of a kind of core of of doing the the really kind of traditionally defined um foundation of your work but that's what I'm committed to <laughs> it's a really good commitment I know it is it, I am always struggling with like the changing landscape of the media right now and just kind of keeping up with it and what is valuable what isn't and just from my perspective it is really fascinating and it's just great to have people like you, and I think also Eric Asimov is really good at this, but like telling stories, and you've done such a good job with that. And so thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, so if anyone wants to find you on Instagram to get some more likes, <laughs> or <laughs> me those likes, on guys. Twitter, where would they find you? Um, Instagram is Esther Mob, E-S-T-H-E-R-M-O-B. And Twitter is Esther underscore Mobley. Um, you can also find me at EstherMobley.com. That's my personal website. And of course, SFChronicle.com slash food. Fantastic. And I'll keep all those links in the show notes as well. So Thanks. thank you so much. Thanks. For more information about Woman & Wine Podcasts, visit our website at WomanAndWinePodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at Woman & Wine Podcast.